So on to a next topic, lots of crossover here, but can you simply differentiate between anxiety and depression with an anxiety component for the listeners? Yes, um, it is and can be sometimes something which is difficult to tease out. Uh, what I would say is that uh, if we look at, for example, generalised anxiety disorder, uh, there'll be a presentation primarily of worry. People who can't stop or control their worrying will have somatic symptoms such as uh, heart palpitations, sweating, digestive uh, uh, discomfort, um, potentially panic attacks, issues with sleep, uh, and just generally feeling keyed up or on edge and restless, uh, muscle tightness, teeth grinding. I mean, they're generally our anxiety symptoms. Yeah. Depression, I've talked about that in terms of the mood aspects and some of the, the somatic uh, and, um, and cognitive and psychological aspects. A lot of the time the issue is that they do co-occur. So you do get a common presentation of people who are depressed who do have some anxious symptomatology mm-hmm. and vice versa. If people have long-standing anxiety, there is uh, statistically they're at a risk of developing into depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that case is sort of raised cortisol, uh, impeding uh, brain-derived neurotropic factor, uh, and that actually impeding neurogenesis, and that may result in depression. So anxiety can certainly cause depression, doesn't always, uh, and depression can present sometimes with some comorbid anxiety. And it's a case of using clinical judgment or uh, getting a referral for a proper diagnosis. So you've done a lot of work with, um, you know, one of my favourite herbs, certainly kava. Um, tell me a little bit about the research that you've done with that and its application to use in anxiety. Yeah, look, we've been uh, very proud of our, our research at UQ and also at the University of Melbourne uh, and uh, Swinburne University of Technology. We've been, been doing a lot of work on looking at using kava but a water-soluble extract of kava. There has been some issues uh, in the past with it being uh, withdrawn uh, from the EU and uh, UK and Canada because of concerns over liver toxicity. So the World Health Organization said, look, uh, let's get away from these ethanol and acetone extracts. Let's go back to basics um, and let's test uh, water-soluble extracts using a rootstock of a noble cultivar, so a, 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 I guess you'd say a, a therapeutic and recreationally used high-quality carver cultivar. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we did. Uh, our research is ongoing. We've already done a few clinical trials. Uh, they've been uh, quite positive in terms of showing that carver, as we expect, would reduce anxiety. Uh, but we're also, uh, we've also done work looking at pharmacogenomics. So we looked at a particular uh, SNP, a uh, single uh, tied polymorphism uh, relating to the GABA transporters. And the GABA transporters help with shuffling of the GABA uh, in and out of the, uh, the neuron. So um, and we do know that CARVA has its effect uh, mainly via uh, GABAergic pathways. So what we've shown that, that, in fact, yes, there are differences in people's uh, GABA transporter polymorphisms mm-hmm. depending on how they'll respond to CARVA. So, you know, there's a chance potentially down the track if we replicate this that this could be a case of personalised medicine. We can go in, get a blood test and see, yep, you've got that particular polymorphism, um, this particular, without going into it, a particular allele uh, for this particular SNP and, you know, you'll be a good candidate for carver. Mm. That's, that's, that's the sort of approach we're looking at. Um, so we're doing an NHMRC study at the moment uh, looking at uh, using carver in generalised anxiety disorders, so proper... 
you know, long-standing anxiety. Uh, it's a large multi-centre study, and we hope to replicate the results of our last study, showing that CARVA was effective in generalised anxiety disorder. We're also hoping to replicate the results of showing that there are genetic differences in people who respond to CARVA, and we're also going to do some neuroimaging. So we're going to look at um, whether uh, GABA metabolites change uh, the levels uh, in the uh, hippocampal uh, amygdala region, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, looking at some gene expression to see whether uh, taking CARVA versus placebo um, uh, triggers as the uh, manufactured expression of various neurochemical genes. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty exciting, and that works starting up uh, very shortly. Mm. So if you're looking at GABAergic um, innovation, if you like, could there potentially be a use for CARVA in, say, chronic pain? Absolutely. Look, it, it, it can be. I'm not saying necessarily it's going to have uh, a strong analgesic effect, I mean, potentially if it's used in high doses. Uh, but, uh, yeah, absolutely, having an anxiolytic effect is beneficial, uh, a muscle relaxing effect uh, is also beneficial. It can also have a topical anaesthetic effect. Mm. Um, so certainly I see a place for CABA in the treatment of chronic pain. And have you ever seen any interactions with CABA, with CABA uh, in, say, gabapentin? It's used with gabapentin. Um, I haven't personally because obviously that's not the thing which you generally recommend. Um, in fact, that, that would be in some cases a contraindication. Uh, a lot of the time when you when you do use uh, the GABA agents such as, for example, benzodiazepines, yeah. um, you know, you, you would caution or contraindicate the use of another uh, GABAergic agent such as CARVA, right. um, just in terms of, yeah, obviously having a, an overdose of that activity. Right, so kind of like a, a, a GABAtonin syndrome. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Potentially, <laughs> yes. I mean, there has been been uh, some case reports of people, you know, taking benzodiazepines and CARVA, for example, and turning up in hospitals, you know, not being able to use their muscles very well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, obviously there's issues probably primarily with, uh, yeah, um, you know, some uh, movement disorders, but, but also, you know, potentially uh, respiratory, um, you know, conditions. And Suppression. then you want the person, obviously, to breathe. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. kind of helps. <laughs> Um, so moving on to another commonly used, uh, and to me it's a herb that seems to have lost a little bit of flavour, but it's, it's a very useful herb, passion flower. And I was speaking to a practitioner just the other day who was using quite high doses for non-responsive um, sleep disorders. What's mm. your experience with this in anxiety and other disorders? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you had a, uh, you had a nice you know, intro there where you could have said people have lost their passion for passion flower. Mm, I mean, yes. A, a good opportunity. <laughs> uh, look, it's, it, there has been some research uh, done on passion flowers, obviously good traditional evidence, as an angiolytic and as a, a sedative and a hypnotic. And look, it is a fantastic herb. There's no doubt about that. In terms of the, the dosage, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's been studied enough in terms of looking at those higher doses because it's a fairly safe uh, plant medicine, a very safe plant medicine. So there is a chance, yeah, if you do use it at higher doses, maybe it does have a dose-dependent effect and you start to get more of a hypnotic activity at the higher doses. Um, yeah, absolutely. But you now we can certainly say, you know, looking at some of the clinical trials which we have out there, that, that it does have an angiolytic effect. Uh, it's also been shown to relieve uh, preoperative anxiety uh, and uh, tends to be quite safe in terms of 
uh, drug interactions from what I understand. And moving on again, another old, good old one, Skullcap. Good old Skullcap. Yes, well, unfortunately, there's really only one clinical trial, a very poorly conducted clinical trial. Uh, I hope the gentleman who conducted it is not listening. Um, <laughs> conducted quite a while ago. So really, I can't certainly say from an evidence-based perspective it's, you know, it's got the support. Uh, once again, you have to rely on traditional evidence mm. and, and clinicians' experience in terms of it being a, uh, an, an angiolytic. And I've used it myself you know, clinically in the past. Uh, yeah, my sense is that it does have you know, quite a nice effect, but unfortunately yeah, there isn't the, uh, the robust research to support it. Yeah, and did you use it alone or in tandem with other herbs like passionflower? And... Oh, of course. I mean, whenever I think of anxiety treatments, I always think of uh, you know, skullcap and passionflower going hand in hand, you know, they're... I don't, I don't know. They, they just, they just, for me, intuitively tend to combine very well. Mm. And obviously, with uh, skullcap, uh, you can use a lower amount. So if you're sort of mixing herbs up, it's quite a nice uh, addition to a mix. Doesn't really require require too much. And and uh, yeah, synergistically, obviously, we don't know from an evidence-based perspective how that interacts with passion flower or the some of the other uh, angiolytics you put in there, such as xeriphus uh, or um, some people may use lithania, chamomile is quite a good one, um, maybe green oats. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually one which I'd love to see a bit more research on. It's just uh, seeing we're looking at, at the moment with the, uh, the World Cup in Brazil is Galfinia Bioca, which uh, is the golden shower for us. There's mm. some good research coming out of South America showing that's quite a, a, a potent and safe uh, angiolytic herb. So stay tuned on that one. Mm-hmm. Great. And so have you got research upcoming on that or you'd like to do research on that? I'd like to do research on everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a matter of whether something gives you the money to do the yeah. research on, on something. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, it would be, yeah, it would be fantastic to, to, to do research on some of those novel plant medicines. I mean, the problem is that we do, I mean, we love researching kava, and I should say that uh, there's some fantastic news has come in, and that is that uh, the regulatory authority in Germany, uh, the... Should say the court mm. has has overturned the uh, carver ban uh, in uh, Germany, which should have a flow-on effect to the EU. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically said, you know, it's it's been uh, how do you say this? Uh, well, it's it, it was not recognised that carver should not should have been withdrawn from any liver issues. So I think we're going to see a resurgence in carver. You know, I'd like to point that out. So that's quite exciting. Mm. Uh, but apart from that, um, you know, we love researching carver, but we would. Absolutely love to to research a range of plant medicines because there's so many, uh, you know, beneficial uh, angiolytic plant medicines out there, antidepressant plant medicines. Um, but we just need to obviously do the clinical studies so mm. that we can say, hey, look, you know, this it's not just a matter of traditional evidence. This stuff really does work in a in a robust scientific model, uh, and I think that that certainly advances the profession uh, much further. I I, um, I I should point out to the listeners that the um, one of the major reasons that carver uh, was taken off the market in Australia was because of not just a carver product, it was a combination product, and it was found that that combination mm-hmm. product also had... Um, uh, skullcap. Skullcap, yes, thank you. Um, so uh, okay. it, <laughs> it was a commonly adulterated herb, skullcap, which was adulterated with germander, um, and that was found in that particular problem that, uh, product that caused liver problems in Australians, notwithstanding that there seem to be issues with the acetone as extracts overseas. Is that why it got taken off overseas? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. We've been doing a bit of research to try to tease out, you know, are these liver toxicity issues actually occurring or is it just being by chance that somebody has been found to be taking kava at the same time as they've been drinking fairly heavily or they've been taking all this other medication or they had a pre-existing liver condition. Um, looking at the results, there's only a handful of cases where causality is probable in respect to kava, so we cannot say that it is not a phenomenally rare occurrence. Mm. Uh, some of the data has shown it could be sort of you know, two cases in you know, millions of, of yeah, uses of it. So... Um, yeah, in terms of why it's happening, we're teasing that out. In fact, we're actually doing a, a preclinical study at the moment looking at hepatocytes uh, stabilised in matrigel. So we're creating sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, um, sort of representative models of the liver. Mm-hmm. And we're testing various carver cultivars, various carver uh, plant parts. Uh, and, you know, for example, the skins uh, of, um, say, the two-day carver, which is generally not used in medicinal practice, versus the, you know, the roots of the noble cultivar, which is what everybody's drinking. So yeah. we're trying to tease out, because we don't... The problem is, is that we don't necessarily think that, yes, carver per se has any liver issues. It could be potentially the type of cultivar used. It could be the type of plant part used, for example, the skins, um, which were bought up quite readily because they're very cheap mm-hmm. um, back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Could it also be, for example, um, you know, that, yes, the ethanol and the acetone has had some effect on drawing out the, some of the chemicals you don't want. Um, so we're doing these studies to try to find out, you know, really what it, what's going on with that. Yeah. And hopefully, yeah, we will have some, some results on that uh, So um, just going back to, you know, our first topic on depression, it's got a very high medication failure for certainly for first try. Is this a case Mm. of sort of, you know, guess which has guess which neurotransmitter is dysfunctional? And so we try the next type Mm. of medicine, which works on a slightly different Mm. neurotransmitter. Are are we at the stage yet where we can confidently either test for which neurotransmitter is out of balance? Or um, is there any other way that we can more um, effectively target the therapy? Yeah, that's a very good question, and the reality is is that um, I think what what you're talking about there is personalised medicine. Mm. And I think we are at the, should say, the doorstep of of the age of personalised medicine, and that's why, for example, with the studies we do of looking at uh, genetic polymorphisms, um, that is one way of trying to determine, you know, whether a person will be will benefit more from one medication or the other. Mm. Uh, in terms of sort of working out which. Uh, neurochemical pathways are dysfunctional and thereby tailoring medication. There has been some work on that, um, and I've got colleagues who are, who are doing uh, you know, some research on that as well to try to determine, for example, with neuroimaging to see whether there are certain pathways which are dysregulated and based on the neuroimaging results, uh, also potentially the uh, saliva uh, you know, biomarker results on tailoring medication according to that. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? Look, it is a very complex... Um, you know, condition when you look at major depressive disorder mm. and a lot of the psychiatric disorders because you have a brain which is neuroplastic and one presentation one day, and this is the big issue, this is my bugbear yeah. with it, is that, yes, somebody comes in with uh, major depressive disorder, uh, you know, they'll present in a certain way, okay, you give them medication based on that, but it's labile. So two mm. weeks down the track and maybe it, it presents more as in an anxious presentation or they start to have sleep issues. Or they, you see, so 
the issue is that, that things are constantly changing. Yeah. So it's trying to have medication and treatment protocols which adapt to that. So I don't think it's a case of necessarily one size fits all um, regarding uh, you know, giving a certain antidepressant. And, yeah, you're right. It would be fantastic to tailor people's treatment uh, depending on what is that actually happening biologically. I mean, for example, some antidepressant agents work more on serotonergic pathways. Some will have additional effects on noradrenergic. So I think clinicians are aware of that, and they are some degree, you know, having some flexibility on presentation. But we are really at the tip of the iceberg, and it, it really has to be, I think, a lot more personalised as we go forward in the future. Mm. And I think you made a very important point as well with regards to not just personalised medication on a population level, but on a patient level. And this is something that I'm really strong and keyed into, um, that we must retain the the um, treatment of the patient at that point in time. And with, you know, I, I get that medis- medications, the pharmacological agents must work on a, you know, a population level, that sort of, um, mm-hmm. that sort of level. But I think the beauty of natural medicine is that we can change our formula as to the presentation, that visit yes. and, and what's going on at yeah. that point in time. And, and I think that's where yeah. the beauty of natural medicine lies. So I, I couldn't agree more. But that, 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 that is one of the fundamental strengths of uh, you know seeing a you know a natural medicine practitioner, and when they're prescribing their herbal medicines, they're prescribing their you know their nutraceutical supplements as well as tailoring uh, you know lifestyle advice. Is that this is fluidic mm. and and this and this is personalised and that individualised approach I think is incredibly beneficial rather than. You know, turning up at the uh, doctor's office and, yep, here's your script, mate, and, you know, we'll see you some, some way down the track. Mm. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, we're obviously, I understand that doctors are under a lot of time pressure, um, but uh, regardless, I think what patients want in a lot of time is, is to have that, that personalised uh, individual care. Mm. So let me move on from that because that lifestyle point is a very important point and, and the role of uh, cognitive behaviour therapy or CBT or other people sort of liken it to um, mindfulness, it's gaining notoriety in a lot of conditions and certainly versus a comparator of uh, a pharmacological agent. What are your thoughts on this and, and, and how do you use it in practice? Oh, look, it is an evolving area, and, and I mean, I'm just personally very pleased it is. I, I mean, I meditate myself, love doing mindfulness work. I'm certainly not very good at it, but um, at least I try. And, you know, I think what's great about it is that, you know, it's, they've drawn from a lot of the time these traditional uh, Eastern practices, Buddhist uh, yogic practices, and synthesized it and applied it for, you know, the Western person. So it's, it's, it's psychologically palatable. But at the end of the day, it's going back to those traditions. And just keeping it simple. Uh, and in terms of mindfulness, there's great evidence uh, shown that uh, mindfulness meditation or uh, the mindfulness application in cognitive behavioural therapy is quite effective uh, in improving mood and, and reducing anxiety. So um, absolutely. I mean, that's something which people can do uh, mindfulness meditation or mindfulness-based uh, stress redu- reduction courses, uh, or they may be able to see uh, a psychologist for referral uh, and actually be taught uh, sort of more of a, a CBT-based mindfulness. Um, oh. But, yeah, absolutely. Very, very uh, robust evidence going to emerge uh, for the use of that technique, so, so fully encouraged. One thing that makes me uncomfortable, a little bit uncomfortable with um, a diagnosis of a psychiatric illness or a psychological um, condition is 
that we get keyed into that is it rather than what came before, what caused it. Something normally causes these things to happen. Do you have any hints and tips for practitioners to try and tease out what is the root cause and how to support that? Well, I don't know if I can relieve your discomfort, Andrew. <laughs> um, unfortunately, look, and I've never seen you uh, not comfortable, so it concerns me. But uh, look, seriously, it's. Uh, I mean, this is a really complex area because when it comes to mental health, uh, usually the, the causations of a particular mental illness are multifactorial. And you've got genetic interfaces with uh, psychosocial determinants. I think you can wrap into that, which really isn't explored enough, um, the effects of just basic lifestyle in terms of, you know, what's happening with their nutrition. You now it's going to have effects on their, their neurochemical production and transmission. Mm. Uh, are they exercising? Um, you know, what, what's happening cognitively? What's their cognitive uh, schema uh, like? So it, it, it rarely comes down to one particular silver bullet. Okay, that's what started the pathogenesis of that particular that person's depressive disorder, for example, uh, it really is quite uh, interrelated and complex. And that's why, for example, it is quite a simple approach saying, look, you're taking a depression because at the end of the day, at least, um, you know, you can get things firing neurochemically um, back to balance. And, uh, and if that's the case, yeah, that's great. But um, you have to obviously encourage the person to do the psychological work, um, which hopefully addresses the underlying issue because all the time it is a psychological aspect. Um, but also equally, it can also be um, a poor diet and a sedentary lifestyle, mm. um, which can also be involved in, in the pathogenesis. So it really comes back to, I think, as always, an integrative approach. Okay, so talking about integrative approaches for depression anxiety, what other things can practitioners do? What sort of advice can you give them? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. Um, look, there are lots of things which, which clinicians can do, and, and this is why it goes back to it's not just all about medication or all about supplements. You know, really that, that is just uh, one uh, aspect, one element in terms of, of promoting good mental health and, and treating mental illness. Uh, I think that we have to really encourage uh, the exploration of, uh, of improving a person's diet. Uh, there's good evidence showing that, uh, you know, high-quality uh, diets and whole foods, low-processed foods, uh, will have an effect on improving mental health, reducing uh, depression and improving uh, anxiety levels, uh, as well as exercise. So getting people off the couch, encouraging them you know, gently at, at their own pace because you don't want to push them too hard mm-hmm. um, with you know, getting out there and, and doing some form of, of exercise. It tends to also, the evidence show that it's dose-dependent, so... If a person does a little higher intensity uh, exercise, it has a, a stronger mood elevating effect. Um, but also encouraging them to engage in some psychological therapy. So that might be CBT, for example. Uh, it might be some uh, sort of interpersonal or narrative based work with a counsellor. Uh, that can be very beneficial. You know, as well as uh, looking at other aspects such as sleep. And there is strong evidence showing that poor quality sleep. Uh, does very much impact mood uh, and can, uh, you know, certainly have an increased risk, so two to threefold, with a person developing a depressive disorder. Uh, looking at substance misuse, so, you know, there can be issues of people with uh, psychological disorders relying on alcohol or cigarettes uh, or recreational drugs uh, in order to um, sort of 
you know, adjust and to work with um, their level of, of, of mental distress or illness. So um, a matter of sort of, you know, getting on top of some of those those issues as well. Um, you know, alcohol use, unfortunately, yeah, can, can tend to be very highly abused in people mm. who do have depression and anxiety. Mm. Um, so there's a range of issues and, and just little things. I mean, one thing which I'm, I'm quite interested in is what about green space? You yeah. know, exposure to nature. Um, <clears throat> exercising in nature is shown to have an even stronger um, mood and self-esteem promoting effect. Um, so those sort of aspects, you know, exposure to sunshine, pet therapy, um, you know, the effect of animals and the beauty with that, our effect uh, with relationships and the cultivation of uh, compassion and love, uh, altruism, giving, uh, having that particular mindset. Uh, I think all of these aspects can be uh, cultivated within a therapeutic relationship if there's enough time to do so uh, and uh, if there's enough uh, will uh, on both sides of the therapeutic fence. You know, people can transform their lives you know, so it's not just a, a magic bullet with taking a supplement. It's really having that integrative approach and promoting, you know, really good mental health. Couldn't have put it better. It's absolutely brilliant advice, Jerome. Thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there, but I, I really cannot thank you enough for not just the clinical advice but the practical advice that you've given the listeners today because it will really help both them and their patients. Indeed, I would say it will help many clinicians look after themselves better. You're very welcome. Thanks, Andrew. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.